for a yay saying, you know, or opening yay, say, man, yay. You know, I'll tell you, though, that ever since we did this thing about the... <clears throat> clear all the throat there. You know, every time I play one note of the Jews' harp, I get 12,000 angry letters and 14,000 letters saying, Groovy, play more. Yeah, well, of course, it all depends. So many people have ears made out of Reynolds wrap. You know, you have problems <laughs> hearing anything. <laughs> Unless it's uh, conventional. I, th I think most people are so conditioned throughout uh, their lifetime as to what is music and what isn't music that they're not prepared to accept anything other than that uh, thing, you know? And that, uh, that fits everything. That fits uh, styles. It fits uh, uh, cars. It fits... Uh, Baseball players, it fits almost anything that you see in your life. You know, women, women. You know? <laughs> oh, yeah, it's very hard to adjust uh, if you're, you know, if you're stuck there deep in the concrete. Let me try this again. Oh, that's great. Oh, I'll tell you. That's, that's, that's glandular. I mean, you agree? of the spheres. Speaking of the music of the spheres, we have a highly literate, very, very highly motivated literate type show here for you tonight. And you don't often do or hear literate type shows on the air. Uh, you know, you just don't. Uh, in fact, you know, there was a piece on Billboard here the other day, or Variety, one of the big trade journals, might be of some interest to you. And uh, they were saying in, in the... Uh, in the piece that that people who write fiction, in other words, guys that write a great novel, uh, short story writers, poets, and so on, never get on any of the television talk shows or even on any of the radio interview shows. Nobody interviews them. Do you know that, John? Now, if you write a book on how to lose 20 pounds in five minutes, you'll be on every show. Or how to cheat in your taxes. <laughs> how to get more out of your sex. You'll be on every show, oh, I'll tell you. That's called the Dr. Rubin Syndrome. But if you wrote War and Peace, friend, you would not even get near even such a, you know, a little minor show as Merv Griffin. You, know, you wouldn't even get you, Oh, they wouldn't even talk to you. No way. Well, I mean, you might as well call it what it is. <laughs> After all, life is life. You have to... You know, life is too short to, to shilly-shally around and not say what you really think. Don't you agree? I think most people... Tend to uh, tend to spend most of their lives hiding under the daybed, uh, hoping that nobody will discover what they really think. And uh, then finally, one day the big curtain falls on you, and you never told them, and they think you loved everything. No, oh yeah, the pigs, you know what? Can you imagine what it would be if tomorrow they called out a new holiday, National Total Candor Day? One day where you could actually tell the truth about everything. Absolutely, without any fear of retribution. I mean, truth from anything, see? You, you know, anything. Like, like, just take a guy. Let's assume a guy's married, see? And he's sitting there in the, in the kitchen. It's, uh, it's morning. He's about to go to work. And it's National Truth Day. And he's a patriotic American. So he believes in, the, you know, celebrating the various holidays. Uh, on Thanksgiving Day, he eats a turkey. On the Valentine's Day, he sends a Valentine, and on uh, on uh, Halloween, he goes out and soaps windows. 
you know, he, he uh, celebrates all the various holidays. You, you, you've seen people like that, right? So on National Truth Day, he celebrates truth. Yeah? And so here he is at 7 o'clock in the morning, and he's sitting down, and his wife says, uh, Good morning. So what was that? She says, Good morning, Clarence. Speak for yourself. There's a pregnant pause. <laughs> you know, he's being truthful. He's not being nasty. He's merely telling the truth. And she says, uh, she says, see, have you noticed that as soon as you tell the truth, people think you're being nasty? Right away, see? <laughs> you're being nasty. So then she says, uh, gee, uh, what's eating you? He says, uh, what was that? Uh, what would you say, Bernice? She says, what's eating you? He says, well, uh, you actually. She says, what? He says, well, you asked me what's eating me. It's you. You know, you've been on my back for 29 years. I don't know why the hell I married you. Oh, wow. So at that point, <laughs> at that point, <laughs> she says, but, but we've got to stay together for the kids. He says, why? Well, what do you mean if them kids? Oh, there are a couple of barnacles hanging around here. Look at that big lot there. Seven feet, nine, weighs 270 pounds, and I got to buy him a 10-speed bike. <laughs> he ought to be carrying me around on his shoulders. Uh, you know, truth is going to get you into trouble, uh, just all the way down the line. So I would like to suggest National Truth Day be a one hell of a wing-ding of, of a holiday. Even the president could come on and tell the truth. You know, and, 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 and I mean, what he really thinks of us. <laughs> he said, look, you ungrateful louts. <laughs> Not one of you could even, for five minutes, talk to the ambassador for Peru. And you call me a dumb boy. You couldn't even, you know, oh, wow. Next thing you know, truth is popping out all over the place. And that would be terrible. Actually, let's make the difference between, let's make the very strong differentiation between truth and candor. Anybody out there got a got a, uh, a uh, dictionary, you'll see there's a distinct difference between truth and candor. We generally call candor truth. It has nothing much to do with truth. In other words, to say what you actually feel does not necessarily mean that you feel the truth. Aha! That's the aha. <laughs> and, uh, and National Candor Day would be very different from National Truth Day. National Truth Day would be far more troublesome, but National Candor Day would cause more fights. Okay? Uh, you know, speaking of National Truth Day, uh, I'm, th I'm thinking about that. You know, nobody ever... Uh, now, now, for example, I have I have written three bestsellers, you know, Joe. In God We Trust, All Others Pay Cash, Wanda Hickey's Night of Golden Memories, and The Ferrari in the Bedroom. And uh, people just don't interview you about fiction. They simply don't. And uh, when they do, when you're booked on a show to talk about uh, fiction, you know, you've written a book, uh, let's say uh, Wanda Hickey just came out in paperback. I get a call from a guy and says, well, what do you want to talk about? <laughs> He's booking me. I say, what do you want to talk Well, I wrote a book, and it took me three years to write it, and I thought you might be interested in the book. Well, uh, yeah, but wouldn't, wouldn't it be great if we talked about it? What do you think the Mets are going to do next year? I said, what the hell is this going to do with what I did, you know? Every, like if you get Tolstoy in there and you say, say, listen, we'd like to ask you about the, we'd like to interview you about the babka. Uh, how do you like uh, your babka? Do you like it with a little touch of honey on it, or do you prefer it with almonds? 
peace. But what about war and peace? What about the, uh, you know, uh, oh, it doesn't matter. It, uh, and, and can you imagine Dostoevsky? Uh, he's written a family memoir. And uh, they call him up. They say, listen, is this autobiographical? He said, I was writing about the Russian people. I was writing about the whole panoply of the Russians. And he says, yes, but uh, actually, did you have a brother like that? Uh, we'd like to talk about your mother. She's great in that story. But it was not Nidhi specifically my mother. That was all of Mother Russia. No way. Can you imagine him trying to handle uh, uh, Mike Douglas? First thing they'd ask Dostoevsky, I could see Mike Douglas, uh, his uh, agent on the phone, say, well, uh, Mr. Dostoevsky, you know, Mike has the, this thing they call the weekly host, the co-host. Now, he has, uh, for example, has Dennis Weaver on. Dennis Weaver sings and he tap dances and all that kind of stuff. And we'd like to have you as a co-host. What can you do? Ah, but I am the... I, I, uh, I can tell the great tales of Russia. I can speak of the... Of the, of the of the uh, of the whole panoply of the, the of Western civilization and of its great impact upon Eastern civilization and the wars and all the oh no now wait a minute wait a minute Theodore now just a minute now we we understand that you you do all those things but do you play the violin now almost how about the balalaika do you do you play the bal ah but the balalaika is only a, it's it's played only by the peasants and and I I do have one thing it's a book. With the, with the peasants sing and dance, and Nastasha says, How's the balalaika? He says, No, 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 not your book. We don't want to talk about that, please. Uh, uh, do you tell any Russian jokes? You got any Russian funnies? You know, like Polish jokes? Do you have any Russian jokes? But this is, this is, I can say the Russian joke. Uh, yes, uh, one time, one time the, the, the criminal was walking down to, oh, but that's another thing. It's a long story. Uh, <laughs> you know, can you imagine some of the greats? of the past appearing as, as guests on the various shows was just a, impossible. Can you imagine, for example, uh, Jonathan Swift uh, appearing on uh, Comedy Night uh, with, uh, you know, great comics being interviewed by, uh, say, David Susskind, who has absolutely no sense of humor whatsoever. Uh, David Susskind's typical question of a humorist, and I speak as a working humorist, would be, uh, sorry, uh, would you please uh, tell us what the influence of the uh, early 19th century satirist has, uh, what has caused to, with the general decline of morality in the Western... Oh, my God almighty. There's a laugh a minute there. So anyway, this, uh, this is a problem that uh, one has to face, and uh, you either face it or not. Uh, can you imagine... Hey, by the way, speaking of great, uh, great confrontations, really great to see... Uh, Let's say, uh, to see a face-to-face -face interview, you know how they have these long fireside chats uh, where uh, Walter Cronkite talks to uh, the president. You know, you've seen these on TV long, and they, they advertise them for weeks. Can you imagine uh, Walter Cronkite having a face-to-face -face talk with, uh, well, let's just say for argument's sake, uh, uh, Voltaire. You ever heard of Voltaire? You haven't. We invented the Volt. Ah, I knew you'd understand that. Yes. You can see we have a... Yes, yes. Now, you, now I give you something to hang on to, Joe. He invented the Volt. The Volt is named after Voltaire. High voltage. Uh, shocks, electricity. <laughs> we 
Would you please give us an American Motors commercial, please? Your AMC dealers got the all-new mid-size car that economizes on everything but comfort. That car, the roomy 74 Matador. And another important advantage. Our 74 Matador comes with an economical six-cylinder engine as standard equipment. And consider this. Matador is the only new mid-size car backed by all the benefits of the exclusive AMC buyer protection plan. Which means that under normal usage and accepting tires, if anything AMC did goes wrong with your new 74 Matador in the first 12 months or 12,000 miles, We'll fix or replace it free. Come in today. Meet the unbeatable combination. 74 Matador, backed by the AMC Buyer Protection Plan. I know, Jerry. Don't worry. I prefer to do it with a little dignity. See your AMC dealer where you get a good deal and a good deal more. Okay? <laughs> he always thinks I forget it. Well, it's all right. That's all right, all right George. By the way, speaking of uh, sticky wickets, uh, I think we're... Uh, that reminds me, this is W.O.R. New York. Yes, sir, a vandal gave a furniture factory a... <laughs> reading this, it sickens me. A vandal gave a furniture factory a very sticky wicket in Great Yarmouth, England. He pulled a plug on a storage tank and flooded the entire factory with a sea of glue. Production stopped. And workers came running out and attacked the gook with shovels and water hoses, which made it even harder. Officials of the Testa Furniture Plant now say the entire plant is glued together, including two foremen. And uh, this is they are investigating. <laughs> That's terrible. Wow. We, you know, I, 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 this is so, you know, the downfall of the Western man. That's it. It's all part of it. Everything's falling apart. England, France, America, the whole works. You know, all uh, on the subject of that, uh, that that whole business of writers being interviewed on TV and radio, that uh, the, according to the Variety or Billboard, there is only one show in all of America that actually talks about fiction on a national basis, and that's a show that comes out of Chicago, not New York. Did you know that? Yep. It's Book World. Bob Cromie. He's on the... Uh, Naturally, non-commercial television. <laughs> Have you ever had the vague feeling that we are growing an entire nation of total illiterates? You know, whose idea of, uh, of, of real uh, historical American created characters are howdy-doody. You know, and uh, I'm very serious about that. I'm, I'm amazed at the number of people who have you know, advanced degrees in literature and one thing or another, who have rarely read anything except the most accepted of American writing. And uh, it's, uh, it's just, uh, I guess it's, uh, it's the way it's going. It's, uh, it's part of uh, our time. I, uh, this, this, of course, is not new. Uh, there have been periods of, uh, of great, uh, curious cultural illiteracy in the past. I'm talking about over the past two, three thousand years where there are periods where where all of mankind suddenly decides that uh, the only thing that's important is a yo-yo. And they'll start yo-yoing for about six or seven hundred years. And uh, everybody runs around yo-yos. And then it slowly uh, comes back and the mind starts working again. 
But I'm just, uh, you know, I'm not, I don't know. I, I'm just, <laughs> just uh, constantly amazed at the number of people who simply uh, do not read. Just don't read. And I wonder, I wonder if, uh, if they learn to read well in school. That's just a question. Do people who don't read know how to read, actually physically know how to read? Or is it hard for them to do it? Is reading hard? That's a, that's a question I'm asking, a rhetorical question. And in short, to, to many people who are otherwise widely educated, is the actual act of reading and visualizing something from the printed page, is that a difficult process? Is it laborious to them? I don't know. Because, you know, it's been so natural to me from the time I was a kid. I, I can't remember not knowing how to read. I simply can't remember learning to read. And uh, from the time I was a little kid, and I guess many, many people are like that. I'm sure that, uh, that uh, most of the people who are listening <laughs> always knew how to read. But I'm surprised, though, to, to, to run into... Tremendous the people who I would ordinarily think would would uh, would read, and who uh, are fairly knowledgeable about what's been written, have very little understanding nor interest in anything that has been written. I wonder what they think all those libraries are for. Studying, as they call it, <laughs> is that what it's for? Studying. Well, what do they think people are studying? Math in those libraries. What? History? I see. Well, all right. If you think it's all history, then how much of that do you read? None. The average American, I, I think, has problems even... Because you, you see all kinds of curious confusions about time in various shows on television, for example, that are supposed to be about historical things. And you realize that they're totally confused, <laughs> that even their researchers go out and very, uh, very uh, uh, superficially will research something. So it's not at all unusual to see a, a, a two-hour documentary on warfare, we'll say, on the Channel 2, we'll say CBS, and they'll show a big war between uh, Charlemagne and one of his enemies, and biplanes are flying over. <laughs> this is constantly happening in various, various uh, uh, so-called serious uh, uh, attempts to create uh, a, a past time. You see it constantly in movies. They're always doing things like that. For example, now, did you see the movie uh, The Way We Were? Classic example of that. They, they, they spent the endless amounts of money, apparently, trying to recreate the period with Barbara Streisand and Robert Redford. And yet, the way Robert Redford was, the way he wore his hair, for example, was totally out of character of people of that period. Completely. <laughs> Completely. Uh, and yet her hair was in period. I couldn't figure it out. Uh, this, uh, this is one of those uh, problems. And they'll use words like, like uh, totally, totally contemporary words that have nothing whatsoever to do with pastime, like the other day, I was watching. Uh, I was watching True Grit. Have you ever seen that? They keep using phrases that have nothing to do with that period, which was in the in the mid 1800s or the late uh, 
1800s, about 1870, I presume, that movie sort of supposed to have taken place, the Indian Territory and all that. And one of the words she used, uh, or somebody used in there, was, uh, he's all messed up. That's a contemporary phrase. Nobody would use that in 1870. <laughs> they would say, what, what, uh, what do you mean by uh, mess up? Because uh, a mess in those days was something the dog did on the floor. Uh, they never referred to your mind in terms of being messed up. That was something else entirely. So, so th these uh, all these badly used analogies and words often come from total ignorance of, of times and places. You know, speaking of literary things, I have a, I have a literary note to make here tonight, very important literary note. Do you recall one of the first times, I think many people's minds are never awakened, really, to... to uh, I suppose you might say the sensory things around you. The only thing that most guys think of in terms of sensual are drinking women. <laughs> That's about it. But the, the sensuality of the world itself, just, just, just the, the, the way the sky looks and the way the light hits the hills, uh, the way the water looks, the way the air smells, and the way the sound of a foot hits the ground, this is all sensual, extremely sensual. And I think most people have never really, most, and I mean that, most people are not awakened to that side of their capabilities, their body. And this is what, what uh, literature can do to you. Now, I think many people have never been opened up. The, the windows of their, their mind have never opened up to the world that they live in. You know, there's a lot of philosophical names for that phenomenon. And uh, without using any of those names, it appears in many different religions even, uh, the, the, the awakened and the unawakened. The awakened are different from the unawakened, and the unawakened are never aware of the fact that they aren't. They really aren't. And they believe that, that from what I've seen of them, uh, they believe that when they when they run into somebody who is who is aware of all the sensuality of the world and, and the uh, curious paradoxes and contradictions and ironies and all that that he's some kind of a nut <laughs> you know he's some kind of a nut and uh, so there's a great gulf between the awakened and the unawakened and I'll never forget I actually remember when I was awakened to the sensuality of the world. I was about in, uh, I would say, roughly seventh grade. In fact, I know I was in seventh grade. I can remember actually the teacher who was involved in it was seventh grade. I had a teacher named Miss Beverly Smith. She always insisted that you call her her full name. She did not like to be called Miss Smith. Because, you know, there's millions of Miss Smiths. She was Miss Beverly Smith. And uh, Miss Beverly Smith was a short kind of a compact lady. She was built a little bit like uh, Fran Tarkenton. <laughs> you know what I mean? She was, she was well-knit. You have a feeling that, that she could have taken a lot of buffeting from NFL linemen and never gotten injured. Uh, good scrambler. And uh, there, there was Miss Beverly Smith, and, and uh, she was not, uh, you know, she was not, there were many different kinds of teachers you have in your life. You have, you have some kind of teachers that give long speeches constantly in class and that are very boring. You have other kind of teachers that, uh, that are constantly nagging. Uh, you, you have, you have, and then you have 
other teachers who were totally inept. I can remember I had I had one teacher who one time it just the whole classroom discipline broke down about three days into the class. We were about in fourth grade, and uh, when when one kid uh, Farkas had a great moment in class where Farkas had a had he, he had a pencil, and he was sitting about halfway back. Uh, on a row right next to the windows. And Farkas had a yellow pencil, see? And he's going like this while, while the teacher is talking. She's up there. She had one of these droning voices that went on, which went around and around like this. And she's talking to the boys and girls. And, and one of those people who you can hardly hear past the third or fourth seat. And, and she didn't even write well on the board. She made little tiny writing. You could hardly see it. And there's certain people who, you know, just like that. And she was a nice lady, but she's struggling around up. And Farkas is going like this. He's banging his pencil, see. And, and of course, it was just echoing around the room. He just go like that. And finally, she says, will you stop that? He just goes. Just keeps right going. That was a test. Dramatic moment. She said, would you please stop that? I say, stop that right this minute. What is your name? You said, Farkas. All right, Ms. Farkas, will you please stop that pencil? We can't hear a thing here in the class. He is saying, make me. Well, at that point, she tried to go on and ignore him. Well, obviously, now the entire class is watching Farkas and not watching the teacher, Right? And Farkas is just sitting there. He's got this shock of, of kind of blondish, red, crummy-looking, badger-colored hair. You know, he was a human badger. See, Farkas was, man. So he's going to... He takes his knuckles and he's going He's bopping away, see. And at that point, it was, you know, are you going to do anything about it, baby? He is saying... Three days into the class, this happened. We had just begun under this teaching. This was the first test of power. Now, what could she and should she have done? Well, that's not easy to answer because some people can get away with things that other people can't. You agree? Some people can walk back there and grab Farkas right by the back of the neck, shake him until his teeth rattle, and that's all. The problem is over for the semester. Other teachers trying that would get a kick in the groin. So nobody knows what to do. And she is going to think she's working. And so it's important if you can hear. He's bobbing away with a pencil. And finally she turns to him and says, Now you stop that. And there was something in her voice. She was retreating. Immediately, the entire class started. Jack Morton took a paper clip and inserted it in the rubber band and went, zap! He winged it over towards Joshua. And that was the end of the class for that year. She was D-U-N, done. It wasn't two weeks later that in the middle of a big hassle going on in class, she started to cry and left the classroom. And we never saw her again. A large lady named Miss Nelson walked in 
And Miss Nelson, within 30 seconds, like a gigantic sickle, had cleaned out all the hogwash. <laughs> we were straightened up, and there was not another sound for the entire semester. And incidentally, Miss Nelson was half the size of the first teacher. There was something, there was, she, she radiated something. And that radiation, it was a series of magnetic waves that said, you mess with me, kid, and you are in big trouble. Trouble, spelled with a capital T, and I'm the one that can do it. You hear that? T. Trouble. So this is the way it goes. Anyway, Miss Beverly Smith, one afternoon, was giving out book assignments for book reviews. You recall that? And uh, they were all, you know, she was handing out book reviews, you know, stuff like Ivanhoe, uh, stuff like Silas Marner. And she said to, she says, for the rest of you, she says, for the, for the rest of you, she said, for, I'm going to give you a, 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 an additional book list, she said, and I'd like to, to uh, underscore a, a couple of books that if you take them out, you may find them really interesting children, boys and girls. And she gave me this book. Oh, everybody else got this supplemental list. Now, most of the kids, you know, just stuck them away to hell with it, you know. They were, they were going to cheat on their book review anyway. But I love reading. So, so I took the supplemental book review, the supplemental book list, down to the library. We had this library. See, and I walked into the library and I said, Mrs. Easter, may I have this book? We had this library. Mrs. Easter, may I have this book? She said, let me see that. She said, they're telling you that you can read this in school? And I said, yes, there's my book list. She said, well, we don't ordinarily give that to children. I said, well, Miss Smith said I could read it. It's right there on the list. Well, I don't know what they're teaching these days at these schools. If it's all right with Miss Smith, it's all right with me, but I certainly think that your mother should know what you're reading. Well, at that point, wow, you know, I thought, oh, my God, it's fantastic. And so she gives me this great big thick book from the adult section. I mean, it was the biggest, thickest, fattest book I ever saw. And I took this book back, and I sat down in the library, and I started to read it. At first, it was very difficult. It was nothing at all like Ivanhoe and Lady of the Lake. And all of a sudden, as I read, I could see the sun coming in through the Venetian blinds.
about to begin. I didn't understand anything. I didn't know what he was, you know, 
what, what it was about. I think really great literature, you don't have to understand what it's about. You feel it like music. It's a felt thing. And uh, he, he just, uh, here I was, I was about, what, how old are you when you're in seventh grade? And, uh, and uh, this fantastic, uh, how old? About 10 or 12. No, I don't think so, because I graduated from grade school at 12. I was about 10 or 11. And uh, it was, and, and we graduated in eighth grade, so I had to be younger than that. So anyway, I was about ten or eleven, and it was it was a fantastic trauma. It really was. And I remember taking this book home and reading it under the covers at home because we had this rule: you had to go to bed at a certain time. And I and I had a pen light, which my aunt Gwen had given to me for my birthday. You know, these little uh, this little fountain pen shaped flashlight. It was a pen light, see, so I was hiding under the covers reading Look Homeward Angel. <laughs> and I didn't know what it was about. I just, just knew I couldn't stop reading it. And it, was, it, it, it changed me forever, really. Uh, I, I specifically remember Gant, Eugene Gant, uh, and, and Ben, The Death of Ben. For any of you who've ever read this thing, you, you, you know it's unforgettable. But here is what uh, I would like to... I would like to, for those of you who are literary types, and this is why it's great to read the newspapers from all over the country. Here is a news note. Give me, you got that reset in there, Joe? Here's a news note from, well, from the Asheville paper, Asheville, North Carolina. This is incidentally what Wolf wrote about. He wrote about Asheville. And here's a news note that just came to me from one of my spies. He says, Shepard, I think you ought to know what's happening down in Asheville. You probably once read Thomas Wolfe. Listen to this. The title is, The Angel is Back. Wolfe's Angel is what they call it. She went back up on her pedestal yesterday in Hendersonville's Oakdale Cemetery after a month and a half of repairs to wings and hand. In fact, she's better than a month ago for city workmen fashioned a new finger star for her head. And they reset a broken hand that was broken years ago. Thomas Wolfe, one of America's great authors, made his angel famous when he wrote his great novel, Look Homeward, Angel. Wolfe, a native of Asheville and graduate of the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill, described the angel in his father's stonecutter shop on Park Square, the very same angel that has stood in Hendersonville's Oakdale Cemetery as a headstone for Margaret E. Johnson since her death in 1905. The angel was carved by his father, Wolf's father, in the novel he was called W.O. Gant. W.O. Gant, for those of you who remember Gant, he was a fantastic character. Carving great stone angels and shaking his fists at the heavens. Oh, God, what have I done to deserve this? What have I done to live in such a world of wanderers and idiots? W.O. Gant.
the people of Henderson County are pleased that the angel has been restored after an admirer of Wolf's writing, David Lupin, 22, of Columbus, Ohio, gave the statue, quote, a caress, and it toppled over, breaking an arm and breaking a halo on the head. The fallen angel was taken to the city's shop for repairs. Earlier, it was decided to have experts from Georgia work on the Italian marble statue. But they finally did it in their own shops by North Carolina workmen, which is the way W.O. Gantt would have wanted it. The men fell to the task eagerly. L.Z. Fernandez of 913 6th Avenue West found a piece of white rock in a cemetery that matched the marble and then with long care and love fashioned a new index finger for the angel. The finger has been missing for many years. He also made new points for the star on her head. Lewis Taylor of Horseshoe, Donald Pridmore of Blythe Street aided Jones in drilling the pins. That hand had been repaired many years ago, Jones said, but it was not on right, so we redid it. It's beautiful now. Thomas Wolfe would have been proud of it. And now the great angel is standing, pointing to the sky, just the way it did in Thomas Wolfe's great novel. We think Tom somewhere feels good about it. Look homeward, angel. Sally bought the angel to put on her aunt's grave back in 1905. And they said that Aunt Sally, and we we'll quote here, Aunt Sally often remarked that she had more money than sense to pay a thousand dollars for a stone angel carved right here in, in Asheville, of all places. She could have gotten an Italian one for that. Many people have an angel carved by W.O. Gant, the angel. Much like, a little like having the poop deck of the Pequod. I'm making a prediction right now. I think that, that, uh, that within not too long, people are going to... There's going to be a re-evaluation of this fantastic writer, but on entirely different grounds for the sheer, unbelievable, enormous musicality of what he wrote. He, he wrote like Beethoven, you know, great chords, fantastic sounds and words, and the smell of the river, and the trains going through the October countryside. K-19, the name of the car, a great Pullman car rolling through the eternal hills, and the angel could not go home again, and the web and the rock flowed on down the road.
sleep. This is WOR New York. Stay tuned for John Wingate in the news.